This is episode four of IQS Tech Factory talk series. Today we talk to Monir Zok, former director of technology and innovation at the US Olympic Committee and current co-founder and CEO at Next Sports. everyone and uh, thank you for joining us once again to another episode of AQS Tech Factory talk series. My name is Oriol Pascual and I'm the managing director of IQS Tech Factory, an accelerator program uh, based in Barcelona where we help uh, industrial startups to go from prototype to the first industrial series. So what do we do at IQS Tech Factory? So as I mentioned, we run an acceleration program. It's very much focused on, on hardware startups, on product startups, and, and we help them go from this uh, functional prototype to a first industrial series. We are also um, connecting large industrial companies that are looking for innovation with um, entrepreneurs that have innovative technologies. So we do that through a community of heads of innovation. And we also tell to the world uh, how important it is to invest in industrial innovation and entrepreneurship, because we believe it's a source of competitive advantage. So why are we doing this? Why are we hosting these conversations? Well, we believe that uh, industrial entrepreneurship uh, is important in order to create a more solid and, uh, um, and competent uh, economy. And uh, the best way to send this message is basically by inviting those making it happen uh, to share their views. So for the upcoming weeks, uh, every other week, uh, we are hosting one of these conversations. We invited uh, scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, heads of acceleration program, corporates um, to come here and to tell us uh, how they see uh, all this area. Before we start, uh, I would like to thank uh, to IQS Tech Factory team and the Barter team, as usual, for being behind the camera and making work everything smooth. So thank you very much for all your support. And also, I would like to remind you that you can send us uh, questions. Uh, you can do this if you are watching this through our website in the embed on the chat. You can send your questions there and we are receiving them and we can uh, share it with our guests today. Also, uh, through social media, if you're watching this through Twitter or through uh, YouTube Live or LinkedIn, you can send uh, your questions with the hashtag TalkSeriousIQSTF. Okay, so today with us, we have uh, Munir Zok. I'm very excited to have uh, Munir uh, with us. Munir is a Lebanese with a degree in physics, and also he has a, a master's and a PhD on biomechanical engineering. As a postdoc researcher, Monique went, from, uh, uh, went farther on his interest in the field of biomechanical engineering, and actually he wanted to go deeper on the idea of how can we use technology to improve health and to improve the human body. And actually, Monique has uh, one of these stories that it goes from being a researcher to be an entrepreneur, and, and he uh, set up his own companies, and he was uh, doing work for uh, professional sport clubs, and we're going to hear quite something about that. But then at a certain point, he received a call from the US Olympic Committee and asked him to join uh, the, the team and to lead the technology and innovation area there. So we are going to hear more about that that time. 
Uh, currently, uh, Munir Sok is the co-founder and CEO of Next Sports, which is an international consulting firm specialized in digital data, innovation, technology, and investment strategy in the sports industry. Uh, so we're going to have basically today a conversation about innovation and entrepreneurship in the sports sector. So Munir, thanks for joining us today and thanks for coming to IQS uh, Tech Factory Talk Series. Thank you, Oriol. Thank you to the whole team for, for having me. It's a pleasure. No, great to have you with us. Although you are of Lebanese origin, you've been living all over the world. And, and, and today, actually, you are following from Barcelona. That's where you're located now. Barcelona is, is my new home. I moved here with my family, my wife and two kids from the Silicon Valley just, just about two years ago, actually. I believe it was mid-June when we moved here. So yeah, we're celebrating our second year anniversary in, in beautiful Barcelona. That's, that's great. Actually, maybe I can jump because that's a question I have prepared for later on. But, but why Barcelona? Why did you decide to, to, to set your base here? Well, when, when we started the company Next Sports, you know, since we are in the, uh, in the sports technology, sports innovation, and sports investment space, we uh, were looking, I mean, at what, where, where do we set up our operating headquarters? So after we uh, set up the company in the U.S., we detected an immediate opportunity to develop business in Europe and the Middle East. We detected an underserved market a market that has many more questions than, than answers. And then we started developing a short list of cities that uh, we would like to establish our, our headquarters in. Um, you know, we ended up with, with four cities, really. One of them was Stockholm, one of them was London, one was Berlin, and one was Barcelona. And Barcelona was the one that just ticked off most boxes, uh, I have to say. For, for me, and I'm, I'm very lucky because it worked out on a personal level as well. My wife is, is from Spain, she's from Valencia. So us being in Barcelona, I know now has a, has even like a, we're closer to family and uh, yeah, and business is doing well. So very happy about this. Awesome. That, that's awesome. And I actually would like uh, already we have quite mature international scene here in Barcelona, but we would love to see more uh, more profiles like yours coming here. So so awesome to have you nearby. I would like to start by by going a little bit about your background eh? and 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 where you're coming from. So. I feel that somehow you were meant to be a long-term academic. Eh? You, you, you did your, uh, your bachelor's, your master's, your PhD, postdoc, uh, postdoc researcher, and then somehow the entrepreneurial back uh, bite you. And, and you went from that, uh, from that uh, more academic and theoretical background to a very uh, hands-on and practitioner approach. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about that that story, how did that happen, and also how do you go from there to not just to be an entrepreneur, but but really to lead something like the the, the, the U.S. Um, uh, uh, Olympic Committee, the, the unit of innovation and entrepreneurship, innovation and technology. Sorry. Okay, Oriol. Lo lo lots of questions. I'm very happy, very happy <laughs> to share the, the story. I'm um, growing up in in Lebanon. You know, growing up in an Arab country. Usually, the society puts lots of academic pressure, you know, so it's an academic-led um, uh, society, you know, that's that's why you have lots and lots of, I mean, specifically in Lebanon, lots of people who pursue, like, their 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 um, education, both in undergrad, but also in, in postgraduate, you know, and and um, usually, you know, you, you are expected to be a lawyer, you're expected to be an engineer, or you're not considered at all, right? So, so growing up in such an environment, you know, there was already pressure to be like uh, performing academically. Um, I went to, to study physics at the American University of, of Beirut. 
um, an amazing uh, experience there. Um, at the end of my physics degree, I was extremely lucky to discover the field of biomedical engineering. Biomedical engineering at that time, it was the late 90s. I mean, it wasn't really a, prob uh, um, 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 a program that was offered in Lebanon. You know, very, very few people had ever heard of biomedical engineering, let alone work in the field. And I got the opportunity to learn about it because one day I was sitting on, on campus at the um, American University of Beirut and one of my um, colleagues who had graduated a couple of years ago in, in physics as well has just come back from, from England and he had studied biomedical engineering and he told me about the program and I was, I was so fascinated by it. And I, you know, I, I thought it was like the, the perfect excuse, you know, to bridge out of physics and head into the, the medical world and somehow meet the expectations that society had for you, you know, like you have to be in the medical area or, or, or a lawyer, right? Um, and, and an engineer is also welcome, I have to say. So then... Um, but was, but sorry, Monir, so, sorry, Monir. So basically you are telling me that, that social pressure worked there. So it's, it's because of the context that you decided to, to study what you studied. Um, it was it was an, an initial uh, an initial uh, push right to, to be there. You know, I'm, I would have, if if I could go back, probably I would have gone more into the humanities humanities field. Probably I would have gone more into like multimedia field. Um, you know, but then again, like uh, reality is that uh, you know I was living in a country like Lebanon. Opportunities are very very limited. A country that was recovering from a twenty year civil war. Um, you know, let alone like I was very lucky to to to. I mean, to, go, to be alive at the end of the war, you know, by uh, when that ended in the early 90s. I was very lucky that we had food on the table. I was very lucky and fortunate to win a scholarship to get into a university like the American University of Beirut, one of the best universities in, in the Middle East. So, you know, so I, 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 had, I had to make it worth, right? <laughs> and that's why I went into scientific, um, scientific career. Uh, I tried doing pre-med, to be honest with you, but it was just much you know uh, i was studying physics and with pre-med on top of physics so there was lots of biology lots of chemistry and it was just too much at a certain point so i decided listen this this like i can't take all of this you know i was never a, a, an a student you know i was like average student throughout my uh, my my academic uh background and um well, yeah so that that led me into physics which led me into engineering which led me to where i am today so i can't complain about it at all <laughs> but back then i would have made other choices probably yeah but now i'm very happy about the choices and and this is because you like this idea of studying the body movement and 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 to have a better understanding of how the body moves I was, I was just fascinated by the fact that you could apply engineering principles to the human body, you know, and not just uh, human uh, engineering skill sets to build machines and to build buildings and build uh, bridges, right? Um, I, was, I was fascinated that you could actually help a person, you know, improve their, their, their life by applying engineering uh, skill sets, you know? So then that is when I went into the topics of prosthetics and orthotics and uh, robotronics and started looking at like mathematical models to look at the blood flow and the musculoskeletal system. And what, well, actually one of my specializations was the area of biomechanics under the big biomedical engineering umbrella. 
And within biomechanics, I um, I went on to do a PhD. Lucky again because I, I was uh, I won a scholarship on modeling the uh, uh, modeling mathematically the musculoskeletal system of the body, with the aim of empowering um, orthopedic surgeons or sort of medical practitioners to be able to make uh, data driven decisions while applying sophisticated engineering. Uh, tools in a very very short amount of time with a patient and 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 make a better decision really yeah would you say that um the these kind of fields of the study of uh of uh, of human body uh, movement um is this a mature field or, or is there still room for improvement i mean you started this some not 20 years ago but maybe some 15 years ago something like that a lot has happened Um, do we still have room for improvement there? Um, the, the, there's this massive, massive room for improvement. And I have to say biomedical engineering and bioengineering as, as a field is one, of the, uh, is one of the most popular degrees right now in the world. You know, there are lots of companies from the pharmaceutical to the insurance to uh, prosthetics, orthotics industry that are looking at biomedical engineers. I think it's, it's a field that, you know, that, 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 that is able to cope with the development of, of, of the world, you know, so if you look at genetic engineering right now, genetic engineering can be part of a biomedical engineering program. If you look at um, applying artificial intelligence to prosthetics, so that a specific sort of uh, um, robotized arm or, or limb can uh, modify its mechanical properties according to weather conditions or according to uh, motor challenges uh, upcoming, you know, that would fit under biomedical engineering. So I'm, I would highly recommend that field for, for anyone who's looking to head into engineering, but sort of is also interested in, in how the human body uh, works. Well, and I, and I even understand that um, in your case, you applied lots of those learnings and discoveries uh, in, in fields like entertainment. So in 3D uh, design and, and animation studios, isn't it? Yeah, actually, that's the, the, there's a funny story there. So I was, I was working at uh, university as, as a researcher. I was in Rome by then. I went to Rome to do my, my PhD in the year 2000. So I was actually 20, 20 years ago. Uh, it's, 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 it's a big number. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> I know how it feels. I know how it feels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you and I are in the same boat. We, And, we, we are not young anymore. We are not young anymore. We want to believe that we still have some. No, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was I was very lucky, you know, that the, that the uh, university I was working at, you know, was it was one of the one of the leading universities in the topic of analyzing the human movement with cutting edge technology. Uh, one of those technologies was uh, quite expensive camera systems, you know, like camera systems that you would have installed in in, in Hollywood movies, you know, where you transform a hangar into into like a 3D scanner uh, space. And you produce movies like Avatar and, and the likes. We were very lucky to have such type of a system installed at, at the university lab where, where I was doing research. And then through, yeah, through, through uh, friendships, uh, we got to meet an animation company that was not able to produce uh, what is called uh, motion graphics uh, and motion capture uh, animation. I was still working on keyframe animation, right? Basically like programming with a keyboard like the, the way a human uh, body moves. So then we were able to negotiate a very good deal with the university who would allow us to rent the space at night, right? As long as we leave it in the morning intact, exactly as we found it. 
So we would be doing research, let's say from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And then from 8 p.m. until 4 a.m., we would be doing animation and working alongside with actors. So we would have actors coming into university labs. We would be putting lots of uh, markers on them, lots of reflective balls. We would transform the uh, biomechanics lab into an animation studio. And then, you know, by 4 a.m., we would have all of the uh, data ready to provide to the animation company, and then they would do all of their magic by making it look good. You know, so that, that is how I went into that space, and that is how I became a co-founder as well uh, of, of one of the um, animation companies that is based in Rome still, and that offers sort of animation services to, uh, to, to, to the uh, European market. That's super interesting. And, and how do you go from there to the fact that one day you get a call from the HR department of, of the US Olympic Committee and, and make you an offer. I mean, it, that's quite a jump. It is, it is a jump. You know, I have to say l- l- lucky is probably the underlying theme of, of my life so far. You know, very, very lucky to be just, just in, in the right place at the right time. Very lucky to get exposed to different individuals. Another, another story there, which was actually born from, from my biomedical engineering days, is that the, the, the team that I was doing research in, um, back in the early 2000s, were starting to accumulate significant knowledge in what we call today wearable technology. Right? Uh, back in 2003, 2004, 2005, we did not have the name wearable technology to, to what we call, like to, for, for, for an Apple Watch, let's say. So back then, um, you know, we, we had the instinct that that technology was going to be a primary technology moving forward that would influence many, many industries. So then with a group of, of researchers uh, and a group of friends, we started looking at, okay, where are certain gaps in the market and how can we take what we are working on inside a university and transform that into a product or a service that would be helpful for people who are working, you know, uh, every day in in in, in their own industries, instead of just focusing on, on the research side and publication and publishing um, articles. So, um, so we set up um, a company and um, that was that the aim was to take knowledge from the university and what we accumulated there and transform those into turnkey solutions that we can provide to the market. The initial idea was to address the physical therapy market. Because, you know, if, if you think about physical therapy, it has been done for many years um, manually and using intuition, right? And whereas there, there was a need back then to uh, start utilizing technology that would enable the physical therapist to make informed decisions so that I, myself, Munir, you know, would not be treated as a number in a database that belongs to a population and then plan A would fit for me, but I would be sort of treated as a person who has a specific history and who will be going through a physical therapy plan and who will be recovering in, in, in certain ways. So monitoring all of the process was, was prime. Um, very luckily, again, um, I was working at the university that is known as the Sports University in, in Rome. It is very close to the Olympic Stadium. It's very uh, close to the Olympic Committee. It's very close to the High Performance Center. And many of my colleagues were working in the sports industry. And um, they started coming to our group, which was an engineering group with specific uh, challenges that they were facing. And we found ourselves solving those challenges um, quite effectively. 
So then we started considering what would it take to get into the sports market, right? And then without even doing it on purpose, we got a call from one of the football teams in Italy and they said, listen, we have heard that you are developing sensors for physical therapists and that you want to get into the physical therapy. Well, we're facing certain challenges here. You know, we're trying to evaluate the effort that our athletes are putting on the field. We are trying to um, carry out certain, like very, very specific tests, like like a, a vertical jump, but we don't want to do it anymore on a, on a carpet-like platform because, you know, we want to do it on the grass and the carpet-like platform will break, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was old technology. Um, can we put, can we use a sensor to do that? So we found the problem statement to be very fascinating, um, quite straightforward from an engineering perspective. And this is how we uh, set up a company called Sensorize in, in Italy. And we started working in the sports technology field. And you know, after doing that, that activity for five years, uh, all of a sudden there was a call coming from the human resources department of, of the U.S. Olympic Committee sharing with me a, a magnificent vision, you know, which was I'm, I'm very happy to get, share with you also guys some, some information. And um, you know, at the beginning, I, I wasn't really sure that, um, that we wanted to move to the U.S. You know, I was with my uh, wife. We had one kid. Uh, my wife and kid were living in Valencia. I was living in Rome. You know, like we were uh, uh, you know, happily uh, living in Rome and, and Valencia, let's say. So business was doing well. Economy was, was not that, that, that well, but perhaps the business was not that impacted. So we did not consider it, but then, you know, they called the second time and then we had another conversation. And then when I started meeting the different people who I would be working with and I did and working for and started getting exposed to that world, I just found it to be so fascinating, you know, and, and the U.S. Olympic Committee, it's one of the top, top organizations in the world, in the sports industry. So working for such an organization, this doesn't come every day. So, um, so then, you know, uh, we, we made a very bold decision uh, to move over. You know, I made, I made, uh, I had to make a decision on what to do with my, uh, you know, with, with, with the companies that I was working in and, and were partly mine in Italy. And I decided, you know what, moving to the U.S. was going to be like a whole new chapter. Um, uh, so I exited those companies. Um, I still maintain amazing relationships with the with the founders, and some of them are still actually doing what what we were doing back then, which is fantastic. And decided to start this new journey in the U.S. back in 2012. I find the the, the, the trip uh, amazing, and and actually so many questions come out of the of the input that you provide us. I find fascinating that is basically the market in the case of Sensorize that is asking for a solution so um of course uh, technology plays a key role in sports um i think it's obvious you know we are always looking for even the the, the smallest improvement and detail in order in order to to improve performance and, and i can imagine that technology is inherent in the practice of sports and and you can tell us a bit more about that but i have to say also it's surprising for me to hear that a sports a football club in that case is looking um to to well to, to measure things in a in a degree that it's very um is looking for accuracy and is looking really i have the feeling that it's about thinking forward you know so so i find this 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 part fascinating and in fact it's i want to use this as a segue because we have a question from the audience that is asking can you succeed in sports without relying on technology so, so what is your take on that again it seems that you need technology to do sports. It's also you, you can run, you can do running in barefoot. You don't need anything, you know, and, 
<laughs> and naked, but it seems that it plays such a big role there. Absolutely. So the technology has always been in sports, you know, but up until 2010, I would say, or up until the birth of the smartphone that we know today, it was confined, excuse me, it was confined to uh, labs, right? So to be able to work with sports technology, you had to take the athletes to um, a sports uh, biomechanics or sports technology lab. And then you would be testing the, the athletes or the players or and then taking them back to the field. And then the coaches and the high performance staff will be getting a report with, with very, very detailed results in the best of cases, 24 hours after the fact. But typically it would take a week, you know, to get those results. And, you know, so there, there, there was this big gap in terms of the tech that could be available, the knowledge that could be available and the real time effectiveness of it, because, you know, in sports, um, Specifically, when you are uh, like developing a strategy to win, um, you know, to win to win competitions, and you're focusing on ensuring that athletes are peaking where they need to peak, you need to be able to make better decisions than your competitors. You know, and and, and it really comes down to that: better decisions as you're training, better decisions when you're traveling, and better decisions when when you are uh, competing. Um, in, in football industry specifically, since you mentioned it, Uriol, um, you know, we, we conducted um, um, uh, a campaign a couple of years ago with, uh, with one of the online sports tech portals called Sport Techie uh, that coincided with the 2018 World Cup. And the, the title of the campaign was The State of the Industry. We interviewed so many different analysts uh, and so many different experts working in, in football, hands-on working in football entities. And the common denominator in terms of the main advancement that happened over the past 10 years, so basically from 2008 until 2018, all of them agreed that it was the entry of a technology like GPS technology into the football industry. You know, in 2008, when we founded Sensorize, finding a GPS antenna was very challenging, extremely challenging, right? Today, I mean, we have it in our phones and it's, it's, it's very accurate. As a matter of fact, you know, um, so by, by democratizing technology, that opened the way to the new wave of sports technology that we are living through today, which is the application of tech on the field. So no reason to take athletes to the lab anymore. The lab comes to, to the field. So decision making becomes exponentially uh, more, uh, more informed. Um, the capability of, of the sports teams to utilize technology in the field of play will determine how informed the decisions that we'll be making. And um, we are heading towards like a smart training and a smart sports uh, way of working rather than um, like hard training. You know, if, if, you look, if you watch one of the Rocky movies, right, from back then, and we're not waking up very early in the morning, running through the snow, running up the stairs there's you know yeah okay this, this this was of the past you know like the more time you put the better you get now it's it is it is about time but it's about quality time not just quantity time right i mean one one of the one of the projects that i was um um that, that the u.s olympic committee worked on was for example fine-tuning the training um programs of athletes on a daily basis so that those athletes can make informed decisions every day regarding what type of training do they make um, can you win without uh, technology today? I mean, you 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 could, 
you know, um, you could. But if you're if you're developing a sustainable success model, if you're if you're developing a program where you will have sustainable success and repeated success, and not just from one athlete or from one team, but across the board, then you have to embed technology so that informed decision making can can, can happen. So I, I, I'm, I'm a big uh, promoter of using technology in sports. I think there's lots and lots and lots to be done still. And we're, we are just scratching the surface, literally. And, uh, you know, just a reminder for everyone that we've been only eight, eight to nine years now working on, on sports technology as we know it today. You know, even though we have, um, we have access to so many technological solutions that we can buy, whether we are uh, weekend warriors or whether we are professional athletes. This is extremely new. The, 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 the term wearable technology was coined in 2014, you know, so wow. six, six years ago. Today, we use it for granted, right? Well, it, it is. And, and actually, well, I think we can all remember the boom that it was with the, uh, or the promise. Those, those of us that we are techno optimists, you know, the new technology comes and then we believe a better future is coming out, out of that. I remember very clearly when, when the first wearables, uh, consumer oriented wearables just start to, to, to get out there. Um, and then, uh, we start talking about the whole concept of the quantified self, you know, that you can start quantifying everything that you do and many things. So, we went, we were going from a phase in which you could um, uh, record on with a paper and pen, you know, uh, different uh, performance and activities that from now on will be automatic. You're wearing something, a bracelet, a Fitbit, whatever it is, and then uh, you are constantly quantifying what you're doing. And from that point, if you ha if that is your goal, you can improve your your performance. I also feel that it was some sort of. Uh, like any new technology comes out there, you know, it, it, it came as something very big and then the situation comes down a little bit and then those that really make use of that then use it, you know, at a certain point everyone was uh, wearing a Fitbit, you know, yeah. uh, and then there are many Fitbits in, in drawers, I believe. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but it stayed also for, for certain uses and certain profiles of people. Uh, but yeah, I guess I mean, for, there, there's, for every technology, there is like a, a similar hype um hype curve that happens right where like it's it's very very modern everyone wants to buy it and there's like massive investments you know like millions or billions of dollars going into that from venture capital mm -hmm. funds and from family offices and the likes then there is like a little depression and then it becomes stable and mature so i think now now we're we're reaching maturity level you know it's very um it's very interesting to observe like different um, activities that, that that Apple is doing in the space, Google is doing in the space, you know, by a recent acquisition that it made. I mean, I think that those companies now understand that there is value to uh, collect data from, from 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 us people so that they can help us live um, a better life. Whereas, you know, back in 2014, it was it was more about uh, curiosity, probably, you know, and there's this, this new toy available and we have to invest on it or we have to buy it. Uh, so that we don't uh, miss out. Uh, maybe it was a FOMO effect, if you want. Yeah, well, but it's it's a typical typical uh, evolution that we spot in many technological cycles. Like, you no, know, look, we had the VR wave some years ago. Then we had the blockchain wave some years ago, and you know, this year is like the AI uh, wave. So you know, this it's um, it's, it's a pattern. 
Before jumping more into um, what's bringing us innovation today and technology today to the world of sports, which I think is a fascinating subject, just just um, uh, to remain a little bit more in the time that you were at the, at the U.S. Olympic Committee. So uh, when you come in there, um, were there antecedents? Uh, uh, so was already the, the, the U.S. Olympic Committee um, having an organized unit department in order to bring innovation and technology and, and, and to look what, 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 is, what is new or, or was something uh, set up from scratch? The, the, the U.S. Olympic uh, Committee, it's one, one of the most visionary sports organizations that I have ever come across, to be honest with you. Um, no, there, there, there were already I mean, lots of uh, activities and lots of um, initiatives that, that were in place. There were amazing individuals that were working when I arrived. Some of them are still working with the U.S. Olympic Committee and doing amazing, amazing, fantastic work. Um, the, when, when, when I arrived to, to the Olympic Committee, again, it was 2012, so it was four years after the birth of the, of the smartphone. It was the time when we started seeing lots of nascent technological offerings on the market. You know, lots of startups were making their way into the industry. The, the big technological corporations were starting to pay attention to the sports industry. They were starting to come into uh, the sports industry, there was new money coming in. So there were just new ways of, of, of doing, uh, doing work. Um, with, with, my, uh, with my arrival, you know, the U.S. Olympic Committee set up uh, a technology and innovation uh, unit. And it started looking at new ways of working with technology and new ways of sourcing technological solutions for the benefit of, of, um, of athletes and for the benefit of, of the U.S. team. Um, so if, if, we may, if we want to do like a comparison with respect to like 10 years ago and, and today, you know, I would say 10 years ago, uh, a sports organization, this, this does not apply only to, to, to the U.S. Olympic Committee, but a sports organization, if it was working in sports technology, it would be um, sourcing technology from engineering uh, companies and asking them to develop prototypes, or it would be awarding research grants for universities to, to do research on and, and deliver um, hardware slash software slash insights, right? Today, uh, sports organizations who are innovating and who are truly uh, applying innovation processes internally, they have developed around them an ecosystem that allows them to tap into as many innovation mechanisms as possible. And instead of taking a problem and launching that problem to one unit on one entity, they would inject that problem into an innovation ecosystem that has a structured process to it. And they would be benefiting from, from uh, like diff different uh, ways of, of, um, of finding uh, so solutions. Um, so I think that today the sports industry, if we think about um, innovation from a performance perspective, like athlete performance, but also innovation from a business perspective, that is business performance, you know, have in front of them um, amazing uh, opportunities to develop um, innovation uh, practices and innovation initiatives to you know tap into the entrepreneurial world, to tap into the investment world, tap into the research world, tap into the established tech world, and not only look at the geographical boundaries within which that sports organization is positioned, but look at the world as a possible platform to leverage to solve uh, its challenges very very quickly. So basically, well, I think th this is uh, fascinating. So um, at IQS Tech Factory, um, we have this uh, strong focus on industrial entrepreneurship and innovation. 
So we are working uh, together also with uh, large industrial companies, which basically do the same that you are just describing. Eh? What we are saying here is that uh, corporate venturing, open innovation, it's also happening in the in the sports sector. Eh? This this change of paradigm of realizing that your internal R and D units are, are are necessary, but not enough to keep up with the pace of innovation that is happening out there and setting up some sort of antennas to identify opportunities and define ways to collaborate or to relate to those activities. So fascinating to see that this is happening also in the in the in the sports sector and that it's becoming mainstream to work like that. Um, I believe it's it's more of a of a must, you know, than than, than a desire, you know. And, and I strongly believe that um, having an innovation process in place empowers an organization to optimize costs and to increase uh, increase success. Whether that success is revenue based or performance based, you know, that, that doesn't really matter because the process can be adopt, adopted uh, very easily, you know, to to address either one vertical within the organization or work horizontally across the organization. For when 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 I was with the with U.S. Olympic team, the, the the word innovation in sports was 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 rare, right? I mean, like you, you could like probably like name um, on on one hand the, the the organizations that were doing innovation in sports, uh, but then you know by 2016 when the Olympic Games were happening in Rio, and then by 2018 when I moved away from the U.S. Olympic Committee, it was it was common, you know, it was a common common keyword. And which is a great indicator that the, these two worlds are, are are coming together, are coming closer. And I strongly believe that there is massive value. Now, at the same time, um, there's lots of confusion on the market, you know, because uh, um, innovation is, is, is a vague term um, that um, I find that very few people understand the real, uh, the real meaning of innovation process and innovation management and innovation pipeline development. And innovation gets confused with uh, flashy technology, with uh, flashy um, digital initiatives, you know, about... Um, so um, I think there's, there's, there's need to clarify you know, on the industry, you know, what, what, what is the value of innovation? How can you really work with it so that you can generate the massive value that you could generate in the future? I'm very happy to, to, to see that you just mentioned Rio because one of the questions that just came like two minutes ago, uh, it has to do exactly with that. So someone from the audience is asking um, a question. Yeah, so the United States won 17 more medals from Rio than in London. Um, was this because of technology? So do you have some insights of why such a dramatic jump in performance? Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's a great question. Um, for, for anyone working in sports, you know, you, you, um, you, would, um, you, you would always look at success in sports as a multifaceted uh, for formula, right? Like there's, not, there's not one thing you do that makes you win, uh, you know, like we, so we can never say it's because of technology, it's because of better talent or because of access to better uh, facilities that there was success. Now, was there a working protocol in place? Yes. Was there a working protocol to generate sustainable success? Yes. Was there, um, was there a working procedure to ensure that on the day of the uh, specific athletes had uh, more um, had had access to more informed decision making operations. Uh, absolutely yes. Now 
all the, the, like a series of variables contribute, you know, but uh, to, to success of any sports team in, or any, any sports organization in any domain, in any country in the world. Uh, specifically for the U.S. Olympic team, it is true that uh, in 2012, uh, the team won uh, 104 medals. And then in 2016, uh, the team won 121 medals, which, which is a big, big increase. It's an increase that you would usually spot and detect in, an, in a host country. You would not spot in, in a non-host country. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the, the English team, they managed to repeat their success from 2012 to 2016 by winning one more medal in 2016, which is an amazing, amazing indication of the great foundational work that they had put in place leading up to the 2012 Olympic Games. Uh, for, for us, I mean, uh, for, for when I was with the U.S. Olympic team, we, we were able to, um, to support as many sports federations as possible within one Olympic cycle. And we were able to do that simply because we put into place a simple machine, right? A machine that was able to detect quickly the challenges that a specific sports federation was facing a machine that was able to qualify those challenges very quickly into business cases that the leadership within the sports federation and the U S Olympic committee were able to prioritize. And in terms of like, where do we, where do we invest our money? Where do we invest our effort? Where do we invest our, our resources? And then an extremely well uh, calibrated and oiled machine, uh, which was this innovation ecosystem to take those business cases and find uh, very quickly a cohort of, of uh, organizations or, or individuals who are able to work on, on, on transforming velodromes into scanners or helping us um, understand you know, how to work with swimmers or how to work with runners or how to work with gymnasts or how to work with, with divers. So it was thanks, thanks to, this, to putting these activities in place that we had several athletes and several coaches who made it to the Olympic Games, who were more, more informed than their competitors, who uh, knew uh, better how to read certain signals, you know, whether it's like them, uh, like their, their performance or some weather conditions in, in ways that uh, were, um, you know, were, were, were available to them and not available to others. But it's not, it wasn't because of a higher budget. It wasn't because of exclusive access. It was just because there was a process that was put in place that started uh, six years, uh, that started back in 20, 2012, 2013, led to some results in 2016. And I can't wait for the next Olympic Games to happen, which for now, uh, we're, we're hoping it's going to be in 2021 to see you know, what, what further success uh, will be built by Team USA. I think this is, this is great because basically what you just told us is that, yes, technology plays a role, but without having a process in place to identify the needs and to qualify and to select and screen and uh, et cetera, et cetera, that would be possible. So the process is so important and, 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 and we are getting quite some questions from, from the audience, but that leads me a bit to the, to the, to the question of, um, what, what, what would be your recommendation to anyone? Uh, one of the areas we have lots of interest is about how is innovation being managed in organizations and, of course, sports organizations, uh, uh, rather uh, either be a club or rather be a, a federation or, or, or so forth, uh, is not that different. But what would be your recommendation for, for any sports organization that wants to set up uh, an innovation unit Precisely to do what you just mentioned, what will be your recommendation? What will be the, the first two, three steps uh, in order to have the solid basis to do that? 
The, the first step, absolutely, um, in my opinion, and this is uh, this is being confirmed by, by the work that we're doing with several of our clients right now, who are um, like international federations, Olympic committees, um, sports clubs, whether it's football, basketball, you, you name it, is starting with an innovation strategy. You know, developing an innovation strategy that is in line with either corporate strategy if the impact is on business or with performance strategy, if the impact is, is on performance or on your social strategy, if you want to go into social innovation, so that you, re, you, you lay down the, um, the roadmap that you have to get agreement on internally, and then you will have to execute upon that. The second one is um, within the innovation strategy and innovation roadmap, um, next thing to do would be to agree internally how are we going to be measuring the success of innovation. Right? Um, we find many, many times that uh, lots of um, sports entities, no matter how big or small, no matter how popular or unpopular they are, they start with an instinct. They get massive uh, consensus internally behind them that we have to head in that direction. Um, but there hasn't been a strategy that has been developed. There were no milestones that were achieved. There were no KPIs that were um, decided upon. And that is, uh, that is uh, the, 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 the evolution of such, of such an initiative would typically end in two to five years because you know, there's either change of management or there's lack of uh, emotional support or now there's lack of consensus or like there was lots of ambiguity regarding what were the results that we were aiming to attain, that those innovation initiatives get killed. And unfortunately, as happens in many organizations, once one innovation initiative gets killed, it's extremely hard to start another one. You know? So if you have an innovation lab, an innovation hub, an innovation unit, that for whatever reason was you know, taken off from the organizational chart, bringing this back in becomes extremely difficult. So step number one, innovation strategy. You know, absolutely. You have to understand what you're working with. You know, you have to do an own internal assessment. You have to understand what are the opportunities ahead of you, what are the threats, and also what are the strengths and weaknesses of your organization. You have to determine what are some of the key activities that you'll be working on, what are some of the pillars that you will be uh, focusing on. And then you have to be able to determine what, what structure will it have, what working principles will it have, what full-time employee structure will it have, how will it be navigating the organization, how will it communicate internally to the organization, but also how, how will it be communicating externally to the, to, to the outside market regarding you know, what, what innovation is about and what innovation efforts are happening. So if you don't take time to do all of this, and if you don't put that in place, um, maybe you'd be lucky, you know, and you 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 start working on on a, on a project that has massive following internally, and then you get authorized to do what uh, what you want to do. Or um, most most cases that that does not end well. Yeah, number one, innovation strategy, hundred percent. That's that's fantastic, and also you, you mentioned. Um... Uh, measuring performance. And that's one of the areas in which it seems that in the practice of innovation management, um, there are more difficulties or that sometimes really get overlooked. Um, so I know that you put lots of effort in exports when you are working with organizations on setting up KPIs that uh, are not only linked to uh, to the to what you will call if you want the, the sports performance, but literally to the business performance. Can you give us a little bit um, of insight of 
what are uh, uh, good KPIs that they can place uh, for innovation practice within the sports sector? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So uh, good K- KPIs in the, in the business performance sector would be uh, time to find solution, for example, from the moment you identify a problem. It would be number of solutions that we can find to the same problem. It would be the number of problems that we could tackle at the same time. It would be the uh, the geographical origin of the solution providers that are coming to us. You know, there are so many indicators that you put in place. Um, any organization, any, any organization around the world um, will have within it a list of problems or challenges that are stagnant that are sitting there and you know that they come back they come up every now and then in a director's meeting and an executive committee and you know and for some reason like the organization has always struggled to find a solution for those would be uh some of the um maybe some of the first first challenges to to tackle so a kpi there would be our capability of actually taking a problem or a challenge Backdating the um, backdating to when it, it originally started, and then proving that we can find working solutions to it, or we can find um, a series of solutions. Some of them will not be working, but there will be some working solutions to it in in a brief amount of time. Um, you know, those those are certain KPIs to to keep in mind. Absolutely. Then you have your revenue targets. Yeah, but. I'm, I mean, I, I like revenue targets when they are associated to innovation, even though um, innovation processes and innovation management is a process that you put in place to enable uh, finding solutions, to enable internal constituents to make more informed decisions within their field. Um, and getting to revenue, you know, depends on some variables that are not necessarily linked to, to innovation. So you could you could include revenue targets if you want, but strictly having revenue targets associated to innovation processes um, could be working for some organizations, but could be not working for others. Do you have some examples? Uh, I know uh, we had conversations uh, before, but do, do you have uh, some examples of these KPIs, uh, innovation-related KPIs connected to, to revenue? And, and maybe you can give us some example of, of some project that you went through and how you've been helping organizations to achieve such results. Absolutely, yes. So we, we're, we work, as I mentioned, with lots of sports organizations. Uh, one of our clients is, is a top uh, f- football club in the world, yeah, without naming who that football club is. And we, we help that football club develop its innovation strategy. Uh, one of the one of the um, one of the um, um, strategy uh, strategic initiatives that they are after is generating new business out of the um, like out of the football entity, right? So, and a new business that doesn't have to do with with football at all, right? So, think about venturing into the insurance space or into the hospitality space or into the travel industry or agriculture, whatever that may be. So one of the one of the KPIs for the new business vertical, you know, that touches innovation is the capability of generating a new revenue line. Okay, this is this is one. So if we uh, if we if we as the innovation um, unit within this football club are able to generate, uh, let's say, at least one business line per season, then that is a KPI that will be used to evaluate how well are we performing there. Um, another KPI that impacts revenue indirectly is our capability of uh, developing proof of concepts 
right? Or minimum viable products, as we like to call them in the like in entrepreneurial uh, ecosystem. Uh, minimum viable products that could be uh, that could be utilized to build a venture on top of that. You know, so that's another KPI, which would be like how many MVPs were we able to generate, and what was our capability to tap into our ecosystem and establish relationships with accelerators or incubators or venture builders or just with entrepreneurs or with investors to take that MVP to stage number two. Yeah? The revenue might not come in yet, but our capability of actually taking what well, one coming to MVP and then taking MVP to next stage is another KPI. That, that that is used within that entity. And will you say in that process, you're talking about accelerators and incubators, so how often of that new innovation out there, how often is something developed internally or how often it's come from outside? And I, I think my question goes more uh, to, to towards the startups, you know? What is the role of startups um, in the innovation strategy in the sports sector today? Um, we have to say, uh, as IQS Tech Factory, uh, we give support to uh, over 70 high-tech high startups today. Maybe for the nature of the region we are in, uh, medical devices um, uh, take a big chunk of the portfolio. Some 34% is medical devices. There is also sport tech, but I have to say it's not on the higher numbers. Uh, there are some, but in fact, is is maybe is not as mature as many other sectors. So... Are startups playing a key role here? Um, so the, and I would say within the sports industry in general, but this, this could apply to all industries, uh, no one knows an organization better than its employees, right? So the capability of an organization to tap into the minds of its employees and extract all of the ideas that they have around how can business be improved, how can process be improved, how can customers be more satisfied, how can customer support services be uh, provided in, in in more effective ways are top of mind, you know, um, within within an organization. So an organization's capability of extracting all of these ideas from the heads of its employees and giving them a tangible space where they can live but, and making those available and transparent within the organization creates massive, massive wealth in terms of the wisdom of the organization and allows uh, leadership to determine, you know, where, what is, what is the heat? Uh, what, what is the, the what is the, the temperature you know within the organization regarding its different challenges? So now, if we take the challenges, we need to find solutions. Now, a sports organization is not a tech company. You know, it should not be a tech company. So we cannot expect that the new fan engagement, artificial intelligence algorithm that is running in an app to come from a sports organization. The challenge identification comes from the sports organization, its capability to tap into an, an ecosystem that can provide solutions is, um, is, 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 has to be part of the machine, right? To come to the solution. And within that machine, startups, I strongly believe has a, have a massive, massive, massive role to play because of how quick they can come with solutions and because of how agile they can be in the business uh, and the business processes that they adopt. Now, unlike big, big organizations where probably even making a decision can take up to a week, maybe it can take up to a month. Within a startup in a month, you have the product ready to be shipped almost, right? So uh, empowering sports organizations with, with, with such type of a working dynamic is extremely powerful. Now, at the same time, Startups have to be extremely careful because of 
uh, because there's there's this uh, mis misleading uh, notion that if I, as a startup, get a brand association with a specific sports entity, then automatically I succeed. This does not happen, guys. You know, it, it has never happened. It will never happen. So if you are a startup and you're thinking about approaching a sports organization, please uh, don't be too humble. Um, please don't be too passive regarding, you know, what, what is being offered to you. Be mindful that you as an entrepreneur have the responsibility to uh, make your organization succeed, to make your startup succeed. And even though you are negotiating with what apparently is a big, big, big brand in front of you that hopefully you want them to be a client or a partner one day, it has to be a win-win. And the win for you, I um, mean, it could be brand association if you want to, but but never expect that just with brand association, you, you will succeed. And this is where we see certain sports organizations working much better than, than others in the, in the industry. The ones who have developed their onboarding, the startup onboarding process, you know, and have the legal team on board and the marketing team on board and the communications team on board and, and are really signing contractual agreements with startups that are startup specific and not our big tech specific, big, big corporation specific are the ones who are doing much better work than, than others who, you know, who are still struggling to find the, 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 the best fit. I think, Monir, great advice for uh, both sides, actually. Great, great, great advice. So re really appreciate it there and, and, and happy to see that the startups definitely play, play a role there. Um, taking into account the time, actually, we have a few questions from the audience, and I would like to take at least a couple of those. Um, one, it comes from Tomas Guinovart, and he's asking, uh, is it easy to integrate innovation into sport clubs in the U.S.? Uh, are there available funding programs for that? And of course, then he's saying, thank you very much for the, for the conversation. So um, is how easy it is to, to integrate innovation in sport clubs, uh, specifically in the US, he's asking. Um, the, the, the US market in general is, is, uh, has, has a very business-driven mindset. You know, they're always looking at business KPIs. So I would say that initiating an innovation activity within a sports club in the US could be easier than initiating it anywhere else in, in the world, yeah. Um, now, um, in the US also, access is easier than, than anywhere else in the world. You know, I remember, um, I remember very, like how, how many startups would, would come to us at the US Olympic Committee saying like, guys, like we come from, uh, we're from Finland, or we're, we're from Sweden, or we're from India, or we're from Lebanon, or we're from Italy. And we've been trying for weeks and weeks and weeks to get in touch with the head of tech or head of innovation or head of communication at our, um, like at our like local clubs or local federations, whatever that is. And we can't believe that we're actually in contact with you and you have replied to the email and we have a demo session organized online. So thank you so much. Um, this this is not to be taken uh, for, for uh, with, with um, for granted. You know, having providing startup to access to startups is, is fundamental. You know, and I think all sports organizations, no matter where they are in the world, they have to understand that. You know, in the U.S., access is much much easier um, than than here. If you want to be in touch with the head of innovation at the San Francisco 49ers, you reach out on LinkedIn. If you have a compelling proposal, you will get a reply. You know, if you were to do it with, with, with a similar entity, you know, somewhere else in the world, it will be too challenging to get a reply. And that is why sometimes it's easier in the U.S. to, to venture into innovation than it is elsewhere. 
And, and this second part, are there a specific uh, funding programs for that? So clubs that maybe are not as big as the 49ers, as you mentioned, uh, they want to implement innovation programs. Is there some support to do that? Um, I mean, uh, an innovation for me needs to be part of any organization, just like you have a marketing department, you have a ticketing department, you have a merchandising department, you have an IT department, you need to have an, an, an innovation department. Now, that department can be one person, it can be half a time full time employee, it can be 10 people, according to what you know, what what your what your yearly budgets are, are, are like. So it's, it's very hard to provide an answer, you know, it's very specific to each organization. Um, another misled um, misled thought within within all industries in general, you know. But I know I know it for a fact in sports is that innovation is reserved to the rich. Um, absolutely not. Um, it's not. It's not a question of, of of economy. It's not a question of budget. It's a question of taking um, a proactive step into the innovation space and understanding that you are developing a process that can impact all of your organization. And just like you have an HR process in place, let's say, yeah, an innovation process can impact all of the organization and that it will bring you lots of benefits um, in, in the future. Let's have the last question from the audience. And I think it's going to be a fantastic way to wrap up this conversation. As you know, we like to keep it for one hour sharp. We're going to be a couple of minutes off. Um, but there is a question specifically about trends, what trends are out there. So maybe a bit about the future. The question is, um, it's complicated to guess or intuit future scenarios, but you have always been characterized by having accurate vision. So what trends or what keys do you see? So what, what is coming regarding innovation in the world of sports? Um, innovation in sports, I would say um, some of the trends that we will be seeing are, are the following. Um, one of them is a term that we coined uh, last year, which we call Athletes Inc., meaning athletes will become more and more entrepreneurs. Athletes will be looking at themselves as companies, as brands during their active career. They will not be waiting like they did in the past to retire and then start um, like a business activity. So that is number one. Um, number two. Will, will that be, Monir, for, for my understanding, will that be when you think um, uh, this athlete inks is like Michael Jordan figure or is that is is that the kind of approach? I mean, not, not necessarily. I mean, you, you do have already some examples here here in Spain. I mean, you look at, uh, there's a player who used to, a football player called Esteban Granero. He used to play for Espanol. Now he's playing in Malaga. You know, uh, he, he's, a, he's an entrepreneur. He has his own AI company that is working in the football industry to provide okay. AI-led uh, uh, solutions in football. You have, I mean, retired athletes like Lance Armstrong, who have set up a venture fund. You have Gerard Piquet here locally in Barcelona. He has set up Cosmos Holding alongside Cosmos Tennis and is venturing into different areas. In the U.S., right. we have the likes of Steph Curry and Andre Iguodala, who are investors in different companies. Um, you know, th 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 there are so many examples today of athletes who are in the startup world in one, in one form or, or another. Um, I I'd get say it. maybe like a tech trend uh, would be, um, I would say, natural language processing in sports. Yeah, I think there's there's, there's a big, big, uh, big market out there available so that uh, people, uh, whether they're fans or um, stakeholders working with an, with an organization, be able to speak to a phone or to a laptop and ask information and receive, receive results or to have those machines recommend 
information uh, information uh, to them. And I think one of the biggest trends that we are, uh, well, what we see because we're working in that field is uh, the, the, the genesis of innovation units within sports organizations across the world and across the sports uh, domains. You know, um, it's, not, it's, not, it's not specific to basketball or football or rugby or hockey or diving or gymnastics. It's across the board, across, across the world as well. Maybe on that line, someone is asking in the audience also about future trends, but it says, do you think we will have bionic human Olympics? Is that something you can foresee? Well, there are, there are already the cyborg Olympics that were organized uh, for three, four years uh, in a row now, but they're more like uh, robots uh, competing. I guess with bionic, right. I think there we're tapping into genetic engineering, into prosthetics that we're worrying that could be like biodegradable, implantables, and so on. I mean, listen, I think that the sports industry in general is, you know, it has has to face at a certain point quite quite a big, massive ethical question around um, around um, doping. Yeah. Today, we talk about chemical doping and pharmaceutical doping, which we're trying to detect, you know, thanks to all the work that the different anti-doping agencies are doing. But we are heading into a genetic doping, a psychological doping um, arena, if we want to call it doping. Yeah, um, I think the word sort of manipulation or enhancement could be, could be better. But there's this big ethical question regarding what do we do? One of my very, very good friends is an Italian athlete who has several medals um, uh, from Olympic Games. And he's also an engineer uh, um, with an engineering academic background. And I remember one day in Silicon Valley, he came over to, to our house. He was on a visit along with his girlfriend and we had dinner and he was telling me, listen, I was just reading a report on genetic engineering. And now I'm thinking, if there is a genetically engineered athlete that will, I mean, let's say she's disqualified from, from competing, right? Who marries... A genetically engineered athlete who is also disqualified because of his, yeah, will their newborn be automatically disqualified or not? And I said, dude, I mean, let's have some more wine and maybe we're going to have an answer. But man, like this, this is a very tough question. And I think these are the questions that will be coming 20, 30 years down the line. And the sports industry exactly. has, to be, has to be ready. To, to exactly them. exactly but those are the new boundaries at the end of the day it is like watching black mirror or watching these uh, cities you know days and days and so on that uh, there is this idea of dystopian world which is not that far from now and 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 we are gonna face exactly that question in in not that many years probably so Hey, Munir, so thank you very much. The time is over. Um, uh, we have uh, some questions from the audience. Actually, I had, I left many of the questions that I had in mind on, on the bucket, but uh, maybe we can find an opportunity another time to, to catch up again and, and to continue the, the conversation. But thank you very much for coming uh, to, to the IQS Tech Factory talk series today. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Oriol. With pleasure, we'll be back. Adeo, una abrazada y muchas gracias.
No, gracias a ti. Thank you very much, Munir. So, so well, with that, uh, we are uh, coming to an end to this conversation. Once again, I would like to thank to the IQS Tech Factory and Barter teams for making it happen. Um, also, thank you for uh, to all the audience for sending questions. We got some unanswered, but we tried to, to plug some in also. And um, we wish you that you have a great time. Thanks for coming and see you very soon.